Latter-day Peace Studies is produced by peace-loving members of The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Any views expressed herein are not to be taken as official positions of the Church or its authorities. Latter-day Peace Studies presents Come Follow Me. I'm Shiloh Logan. And I'm Ben Peterson. Thank you for joining us as we discuss this week's reading of Come Follow Me, as outlined by The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. We're recording these podcasts from our homes, and so you'll often hear children playing, dogs barking, and babies crying. This is our life, and we love it. Our hope is that as we discuss these scriptures and truths, we will come to a more perfect understanding through experiencing the atonement of Jesus Christ and find greater peace in our lives. Well, Ben, we're back again. We are now covering, we, we spent some time on the Sermon on the Mount. I knew we would spend a lot of time on the Sermon on the Mount. We ended up spending a lot of time. Yeah, almost three <laughs> hours. Uh, we did two full podcasts on those chapters there, which, I mean, it makes sense. But yeah, it was more than I was expecting. Yeah, more than I was expecting. And I knew when we were going to do the war chapters and to set that up, I was like, I know there's going to be more than one episode for this. And when we're coming into the Beatitudes, I know there's going to be more than one episode for that. So now we're kind of back in the swing of things. And, you know, we'll get through this today, but we're going through chapters 17, 18, and 19 today. And man, what beautiful chapters. You know, you and I were talking about it and you'd, you'd said poetic. And I think that's a great word for it because these are just beautifully written. And as you just take your time with these chapters as, I mean, and because this is where Jesus really visits with them. And what I like about their discussions last week were these are very mental discussions that try to bring things down into the heart. And then once you start to go out and you try to experience it, right? So the Beatitudes really kind of introduce this whole new way of being. And then you have this idea about this new way of being, but you don't even know how to really do it. And so then at that point, Christ opens up the Sermon on the Mount and you get these little vignettes of like, this is what it means to be this person. This is what it means to be this person. And this is what this person would do in this moment and in this situation. And in doing so, Christ is really coming along as a new Moses, right? Because that's really the theme in Matthew and he's really doing the same here. And is that whole, you have heard it hath been said, but I say unto you this. You know, yeah, if he's you've the heard new this, Right. But in these chapters, these chapters really shift gears. This is where it moves out of the head and really even kind of, I don't know if it's it moves out of the heart, but it becomes purely experiential. Like it's all about the experience of being there with Jesus. So now, I mean, there's like, there's no... You know, we'll, we'll get into a little bit of doctrine, a little bit, uh, you know, Jesus commanding to, how to baptize and, and take the sacrament and that kind of stuff. But this, the focus here seems to be so much more on just living and being in and just sitting with the experience of Christ than trying to just keep him in your head and in your heart. It's like going out and actually taste. Yeah. So I don't, I think this is the right word for it. You know, these chapters, while the others might have been a little more doctrinal, in, in their approach, these we might call phenomenological, right? And you were talking about, you know, the, the poetry of these chapters. I might describe chapter 17 and 18 to a certain extent. The word that comes to mind for me is pristine, you know, like immaculate. This, this chapter is just like this account we have of this celestial experience. And so there's not a whole lot to compare it too in other places in the Book of Mormon. So it's unique in that sense. 
I love chapter 17. It's, it's beautiful to not just read, but um, to listen to. Like if you pull up the app and you listen to the audio version of it. So someone's like speaking, like they're telling you this story. Um, it's a little bit different experience as well. So I'd recommend doing that too. Yeah, I actually did that this morning while I was at work. I, I was listening to these three chapters. Then I came home tonight and I read it. It is a completely different experience. As I was thinking about uh, about this, I almost wanted to start at the end and then go back to the beginning. But it's when Jesus comes along and, and he's he's comparing and contrasting between them and the people in the old world where he came from. And it says at the end of uh, verse, I'm sorry, at the end of chapter 19, and it came to pass that when Jesus had made an end of praying, he came into the disciples and said unto them, so great faith have I never seen among all the Jews, wherefore I could not show unto them so great miracles because of their unbelief. Verily I say unto you, there are none of them that have seen so great things as ye have seen, neither have they heard so great things as ye have heard. And one of the things that I was focusing on and and going through here is that these chapters talk a lot about belief and belief in something. And belief is something that I've been thinking a lot about and and kind of loosely researching and 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 pulling together resources. And I know maybe one day I'll write something about it. But kind of this stage in my life, belief has for me always been kind of in this realm of truth claims, like. You know, we have axiomatic truth claims like this is truth and that happened and this is truth and this is truth and this is truth. And I believe it. This experience of belief, of having an opinion or because belief for me goes beyond having an opinion. And it's like somewhere in this realm, like between opinion and truth and like knowledge where belief is like in this weird middle ground. And the experience of having belief, but Christ says we can't have belief with contention, right? And so we, we can't express our belief and then have someone reject our belief and then have the feeling of like anger, because that's what, that's what usually happens, right? When, when we have a belief and someone attacks our belief, we have this anger. And Christ tells us like, no, 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 you're not doing it right if you're doing that either. So it's, it's really interesting as I've been thinking about belief uh, in this context where Belief seems to be more than just having a really firmly held opinion about something. There, and I think you said it well. The the having a phenomenon. There's a phenomenon that's associated with belief that I think is often overlooked, as we just treat belief as the adherence to a particular opinion, even a strongly held opinion. I think there's a deeper a deeper concept there with belief. Yeah, I think so. Somehow it's it's been integrated into your personal experience and it can go on to to become a, a type of knowledge but i think what you said about belief is accurate <laughs> um, <laughs> the the beginning of chapter 17 i mean i like how you tied in the end of of 19 to this because at the beginning of chapter 17 he's just taught them all these things and there's almost this moment where I, i'm not quite sure what christ's intentions were here it's something that we could definitely analyze a bit, but he he kind of implies that he's going to be leaving. And then he, it's almost like he changes his mind and decides to stay. And I'm not sure if that's what's actually going on. You know, does, does Christ change his mind? I'm not, I'm not sure uh, <laughs> whether that is, is accurate or not, but 
in any case, um, there's definitely something going on here with the faith of the people that means that they're able to see and experience things that they wouldn't have been able to experience and see otherwise. He says here in verse 2, I perceive that ye are weak, that ye cannot understand all my words which I am commanded of the Father to speak unto you at this time. Therefore go ye into your homes, and ponder upon the things which I have said, and ask of the Father in my name, that ye may understand, and prepare your minds for the morrow, and I come unto you again. And then he goes on to actually perform all these amazing unspeakable, indescribable miracles among them and do the sacrament and and teach them about that and everything. And I just wonder here, you know, were they really not prepared um, like he kind of infers or was it just the very fact that he told them that they needed to go prepare that their faith then immediately manifested itself and he was like, well, you did, so actually we can proceed with all of these things that we were going to try to do tomorrow or something like that. Yeah, not not really sure exactly what's going on here. I don't know. you have any thoughts on that? Yeah, I was thinking the, the same thing when I was going through this again. And it, it is kind of strange because he's like, okay, I got to go. But I, okay, no, you're right. I'm going to stay for a little bit. No, I really got to go now. Okay, but I'm going to stay. And he's like, no, but I really got to go. <laughs> And so we have this like back and forth uh, a bunch, and it's really kind of an interesting window into either Christ's personality or the author's. I I don't know, you know, I I really don't know here. But what is interesting is that I love how Christ perceives this of him. He has a message that the people are not ready for. He, I mean, and they're at the temple setting, right? So this whole this whole thing that we talked about with the Beatitudes is supposed to be given in a temple setting. It's supposed to be seen in that kind of in that kind of increased spirituality because you know the temple is is always symbolic of our spiritual journey into into celestial realms as and so is the beatitudes and so in this particular way you see that they're already at the temple they're already there at the grounds they're already sitting on the mountaintop as it were you know like in the beatitude beatitudes in the sermon on the mountain matthew but this is a place of instruction and he sends them home Mm-hmm. And it's in the home where they're actually supposed to like sit with this. That's where they're supposed to ponder with this. That's where they're supposed to contemplate and to and to be with their families and to really try to figure this out. And as he perceives that they're not quite ready to receive it, uh, the first thing he does is he heals them. And I think that's interesting is that in his perception that they're not ready, the first thing that he does is, okay, well, let's do something physical. And so he brings them in. And so he's not curing necessarily the inner man, but he's curing the, the external. He's curing the things that are perceived to be not right. And so in this, he, he's asking them any blind or lame or halt or, or leprous, withered, you know, anyone that it needs to be healed, bring them in. And so there's this miraculous, beautiful moment now that they are experiencing the healing power of Christ. And they're first experiencing it from the outside in. Now, what are the people who weren't injured? What experience are they having watching this? 
what are they coming to? And how are they now beginning to understand what they didn't understand before? And then as soon as this happens, then at that point, then they bring all of the children together, right? And now we have this beautiful scene where now all of the children come in into this. And I didn't bring this up before with you when we were talking before, but I think language is a very fascinating discussion here as far as like the limits of language are concerned. Mm -hmm. When we've talked about the Beatitudes and being the salt of the earth, we've also talked about how salt trying to take trying to describe the taste of salt is impossible. We don't, our language is not powerful enough to do it, right? If you took someone who's never tasted salt, simply I mean you can describe it a thousand ways and you will never communicate to that person that they will as if they've had an experience actually tasting it. So language has limits to communicating just not just knowledge but experience. Our language is not strong enough to communicate experience and feelings to where the other person actually feels that, right? That has to be done by a higher power. Now, as I taught uh, my seminary class years ago, is that language, you know, there are some languages like calculus. See, I'm not a big calculus guy. I'm not a big math guy. That's why I went into philosophy, right? (laughs) (laughs) But I do know enough about calculus to realize its predictive value. Now, but what was fascinating is when Newton, okay, whether it was Newton or Leibniz, whatever, I'm not here to discuss who created calculus, but whoever <laughs> created calculus, what they did is they created a brand new language, and math is a language, where that language has certain, let's call them grammar rules, and it has certain syntax, and it has certain certain things you have to follow. And that particular language does not communicate or impart you know, words of love or affirmation like the English language might, right? But with calculus, I can observe heavenly bodies in one for a particular time, and I can actually, through that language, predict future events. Mm-hmm. I can I can use that language to say, well, if everything remains the same, this is how that will end with an absolute amount of certainty, just in the power of the language alone. And so we have to start recognizing that language can have all sorts of power depending on what is within that language to do. And so with this language that we know, Christ is now speaking with his language. And man, I would love to know what that is. But the human tongue and their language had no equivalency to be able to even begin to explain what was going on in a way that they were actually experiencing it. So now he's, Jesus is sitting here with them, recognizing that they are weak. And he doesn't keep on giving them ideas. He doesn't keep rationalizing with them. He doesn't try to keep giving them doctrine. He doesn't try to keep them doing all these things. He gives them an experience. Mm -hmm. He's like, okay, let's, let's heal you. Let's bring these children out. And I even have right here in, in the margins, a question that I had about this whole thing that I said, you know, I said, this is absolutely beautiful, but why is it happening? Like, what's the purpose of all of this? What's the purpose of like the, the angels and the children and the fire? I still don't really know, but at least in this context, it becomes a little bit more clear that at least in a little part, it's because it's in having experiences with God that we are then able to ponder on those things and prepare and repent our minds and our hearts to be able to receive greater things that he has in store for us. 
Yeah, I mean, there's, I think there's quite a few layers here of what's really going on. But ultimately, I, I'm not sure if it's just that there's like a purpose to this other than this is just being, right? Like the people are, are there. They're poor in spirit. Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. What's the kingdom of heaven? This. That's it. This is it. What does Christ say about the little children? Of such is the kingdom of heaven. And so these people just simply sit there and experience it. And it's it's not, it may not be preparing them for anything. It's just saying, this is what it is. You're experiencing it right now. And you can have this in any moment that you want, that you choose. You can have it. And I will show you how. This is how. And he gets down and prays. And, you know, you you brought up the fact about language and how there's certain languages that can express certain things and other languages. It's just impossible for them to express those things. You know, it's impossible for calculus to express certain things that English can express and vice versa. And that whatever it is that is this language of the spirit, which we all have some sort of experience with, I would, I would guess this is why we're hungering and thirsting after righteousness, because we know there's some substance there. We know that it expresses things that no other language or way of communicating expresses for us. And so that's why we keep coming back to it. But I think we have a fascinating little clue here and I don't know what it means, but it's something I'm going to be thinking about for quite a while to come, I think. In verse 16, it says, And after this manner do they bear record. The eye hath never seen, neither hath the ear heard before, so great and marvelous things as we saw and heard Jesus speak unto the Father. Well, when someone speaks... We commonly will think about their communication as just being a sound, right? That we hear with our ears. But something with the way that Jesus communicated was at least as much about what you see as what you heard in that experience. And so something about that language is visual, is much more visual than we might have taken it to be. And that's why or that's one of the reasons why, maybe even just a small reason, why it could not be recorded with written word. And so I just, that that stood out to me this time like it hasn't before because it's pointing out that the experience here wasn't just about what they heard Jesus say, but what they actually saw him do or, or I don't know, what they saw. <laughs> maybe it wasn't something he did, but it was something with the way he communicated with the father that they saw that was an experience different than anything else they'd had. And they could not express it any other way than just you have to see it. And that's really fascinating to me. I'm going to be thinking about that for a little while. I love. Yeah. I didn't pick that out. That's awesome. Yeah. I love verse four here. Christ says, you know, right, right as he's saying, he's, he's gotta, he's gotta go away and then come back. He says, to show myself unto the lost tribes of Israel, for they are not lost unto the Father. 
for he knoweth whither he hath taken them. And isn't that so interesting, an insight into Jesus telling us, hey, your perception of things, you know, we talk about these lost tribes of Israel, they're lost to you, they're lost to the world, to human perception. They're not lost to the Father. No one is ever lost to the Father. No one. He knows where everyone is, and he will always go to find them. And I just, I love that description there. Because Christ is referring to this thing that, you know, we have in the scriptures all the time, but he's saying, you know, remember that this term lost is really just a, a condescending term, not condescending in a, in a derogatory way, but a term that, that we use and that prophets use and that I have used so that you can understand from your perception what it seems like. But let me tell you how God sees this. They are never lost to him. And so I just love that flip of perception right there. And and then, you know, just this chapter, the experience with the children isn't, uh, there's, there's no equal I can think of to it. And I, it, it, I think if, if anybody's ever been in an experience where they've taught little children, it can be a, one of the most horrible horrible things you ever do or one of the most amazing <laughs> <laughs> and i've had both experiences with it and that's uh, it's so interesting but i just i love this imagery of of christ there in the middle and all of these children sitting around him and them being the focus of the multitude them being right around christ and then everybody else out from that and him showing the people, him showing, okay, this is, now watch, watch how your children behave. Let them teach you. Watch what happens now. Be, he says, behold your little ones in verse 23. And, and I love that. He says, now learn from your children, from what happens from here, how they interact with these angels and, and everything. And again, we don't, we don't know what really happens we just know that that was an experience these people were able and needed to have. Yeah, you know, something you said there, as I'm reading verse 20, and what's present with me right now with verse 20, I hadn't picked it out before, but it says, And they arose from the earth from where they had been praying, and he said unto them, Blessed are ye because of your faith, and now behold, my joy is full. You know, this blessed are come again, you know, that's, that's beatitude speak. And that blessedness that we see just a few chapters before, at least in the, in the Matthew context, is this Greek word makarios, which is a very complex word and, and one that we talked about before. But it's this word that tried to invoke this idea of coming into the uh, kind of an at-one-ment with God, coming into the presence and a unity with God. In that if God were here, this is what he would be doing and being, and this is what you are going to be doing and being. And as such, we are now one together in this blessed. And so that blessedness and that blessed Makarios is supposed to invoke that kind of imagery of being at one with God. And so is it that as they are praying now because of this healing the sick and of watching the children being blessed? that blessed are ye because of your faith. Their faith is growing. 
They are now, their faith is now bringing them into an at-one-ment with God. And now they're coming into the same unity and alignment. And this is the source of Christ's joy. Now is his joy full. And in this moment, is he going to verse 21? And when he had said these words, he wept. And the multitude bear record. And he took the little children one by one and blessed them and prayed unto the Father for them. And when he had done this, again, he wept. And then this, as you said in verse 23, then he turns to them, behold, your little ones. You know, this is, I, I love that, that you said, is this just what it means to be? Is this the state of being with God, of just being? And if so, that means that it's possible for us. It's possible for them. It's possible for us. You know, there's nothing special necessarily about this time and these people. This is this is definitely something that is within the parameter of something that we can also experience. And that gives us a clue as to why this people was able to maintain a society of righteousness for so long after this, is that they recognized that they could have this all the time if they just chose it, if they just chose to be this, uh, that Christ gave them the understanding that this could be reality. If they simply just were willing to, for it to be. And that's that's why, you know, the willingness is interesting how it goes into chapter 18 with the sacrament. And they just had this whole experience, right? And and we're going to later talk about baptism, but um, this, is, this is fascinating to me that it's like, okay, you just had this whole experience. Now let's commemorate this, so to speak, with an ordinance so that when you repeat this, you will remember the experience and perhaps you will then re-experience it again as as part of that memory or that memory will evoke within you the desire and willingness and uh, to re-experience what you just experienced before we commemorated this with the ordinance and um, this kind of goes back to Alma chapter 18 right where this the people have all this experience and then Alma's like okay let's get baptized so that we commemorate this so that when we experience this ordinance again in the future, either we do it again or we see it again, that we can remember and sort of in in a way, either vicariously or just in what way, I'm not sure, re-experience that or re-institute that experience that we had before we commemorated it with the ordinance. So that's what I see happening here with the sacrament, uh, that Christ is saying, uh, let's let's do this so that this is something that you can, uh, when I'm gone, you can repeat this to remember this experience you just had. Yeah, so that fits in right with what we were talking about before as well about in, in previous podcasts about it, throughout the Book of Mormon, there are these moments when the Nephites fixated on having the covenant or the oath and then trying to live into it. They weren't converted yet. They just, they made the oath and they put a lot of value to the oath and then they tried to live into it, never really knowing what it was. But then you had people, just like you said, they're in Mosiah 18 and several other places, like with the anti-Nephi-Lehi's and the Lamanites in Helaman 5, where they're converted to the gospel first 
And then I love the word that you just came, that you just used, commemorate. Then they commemorate it with this symbolism and the symbolism of, of the bread, which he says in verse seven, and this shall you do in remembrance of my body, which I have shown unto you. And it shall be a testimony unto the father that you do always remember me. It's right. It's like a commemorative of that event. You know, we talked, I think it was last week where we talked about how the sacrament is a symbol of a symbol, right? Mm -hmm. You know, it's the bread and the water is a symbol of the body and the blood, but it's a symbol of what? And here we're shown that it's in remembrance of this experience that they've had. The remembrance of him being there with them, of, of him healing the sick and of being with their little children in this way of him praying in miraculous events. And so... What stood out to me on this is that these, these, this symbolism of the the bread and the wine uh, here, wine, right? Where it's all about remembering who and what Christ is in that moment that we had that experience where we were brought into that oneness with God. Yeah, that's that's powerful stuff. Yeah, and remembering as we just talked about before that this. It, this isn't a one-time experience that you just look, you only look back on, but it's remembering that you can have that experience again. You can repeat that experience anytime you desire, or at least that is the promise of the Holy Ghost, that if we are willing and we remember him, that we can have the Holy Ghost with us, which is the symbolic, not even symbolic, also literal presence of God in that we are experiencing what we just read about in chapter 17. I mean, that is the actual experience. And then, um, you know, the Holy Ghost can, can bring that to our minds and help us experience that again in our heart. And so I, I see how that all ties together. And I had never, before we started talking about this, I had never seen how how 17 just naturally flowed into 18 with the ordinance of the sacrament. It's almost like, okay, now Jesus is like, all right, um, let's move on to this next part of my visit. And it wasn't like, let's move on to this next part. It was just like this completely natural continuation of the whole experience. Uh, so anyway, I, I, I love that there. Yeah, because that, that follows right through here, because as soon as he gives them the sacrament, then we start getting into baptism, right? Mm -hmm. And as soon as we start talking about baptism, baptism real and being poor in spirit, the, that first beatitude and entering into the conversation of the beatitudes, baptism then is this, now you're giving up this whole alternate identity, what Thomas Merton calls the false self. This, this identity that is not, that you've assumed is you, that you've thought is you, that you've taken upon you as you, but that's not really you. And now we're starting to pull that away. Now, how do we know what's the true self versus the false self? But we can almost begin to see here that this might be, in a, at least in a little part, why they wouldn't be able to understand what Christ was talking about. Because they're still rooted in, kind of in that false self, that false identity, and they don't have the the context yet to be able to learn how to pull away the false self from the true self just to be there with Christ. And so all of a sudden they're led through these experiences and they're led through this glory. And Jesus is like, you got it. That's it. Now let's commemorate this. This is what you're going to do to remember that. Now this is what baptism is about. It's about learning how to leave this natural, this, this thing behind and to come through as some, so this brand new, this brand new self, right? 
where and then at that point now you can start to build on this rock because this new self is now you're entering into the conversation of what it means to take upon yourself the name of Christ. And I think it's kind of interesting there. The next lead in after that comes in about prayer. And it's like, remember, you got to pray. And whatever you know, you said, Ben, that, yeah, this isn't a moment in an experience that you've had years ago and that you just commemorate it through, through the sacrament. It's a remembrance of, I had it on Saturday and I'm commemorating it on Sunday, or I had it here and I'm, I'm it, it's always a commemoration, yes, but it's a, it's a daily experience that we can have. And we're literally told by the Savior, listen, whatever you pray for that is right, and you know, and you have that confidence that it's going, it's true and that it's there, you're going to have it. And that's the blessing of that prayer. And then he immediately brings in this, this Satan concept. And it's a really interesting place to introduce the idea of Satan back into this mix. But he says it in verse 18, behold, verily, verily, I say unto you that you must watch and pray always, lest ye enter into temptation for Satan desireth to have you, that he may sift you as wheat. Therefore, you must pray always unto the Father in my name, and whatsoever you shall ask in the Father in my name, which is right, believing that you shall receive, behold, it shall be given unto you. Pray in your families unto the Father, always in my name, that your wives and your children may be blessed. There's that blessed again, that your wives and your children may be able to be brought into that conversation with God as well. Yeah, it is. This is this is a really fantastic way to unfold this. It's just a natural rolling narrative about how just one event leads to the next. It's not like broken up segments of like moving on to the next event. This is just, yeah, it's just a very natural flow through. I like that. It does flow very well. And and these chapters, you know, are a natural sort of uh, succession to the Sermon on the Mount that we don't get in the Gospels uh, per se. You know, we do get Christ's miracles and we do get you know, some of that, but the way that it's laid out here with him teaching the people, you know, it is very interesting how in the end of chapter 19, he says, you know, a lot of these things that we've done and that you've seen and experienced the people at Jerusalem, they were not ready to experience them. And so they, they weren't able to see them and, and understand them, but you have, and so we have this record here. And so, um, it's amazing, you know, the, the, what the Book of Mormon is able to, to give us in terms of sort of the additional profundity of of Christ's teachings here. I like how the second, kind of the second half of chapter 18 really focuses on that this experience that you've just had is for everyone. And I want everyone to be part of this. I want you to give the opportunity to everyone you ever meet to come and be a part of this and experience this. And maybe it will take them a long time before they understand it, but keep inviting them and never send them away. Always let them be with you no matter what, no matter what. Um, you know, constantly he's saying uh, here, nevertheless, you shall not cast him out from among you and then give some qualifications and then comes back and says, nevertheless, you shall not cast him out of your synagogues or your places of worship. So he's saying, even if this, don't cast him out. Even if this, don't cast him out. In fact, there's no point in here at which Christ says, but if he goes this far, go ahead and cast him out. <laughs> right. You know, it's so interesting to me here. Uh, let me see here. Verse 28. 
Uh, no, not verse 28. I think it's, it's like in verse 30 where it talks about, nevertheless, you shall not cast him out from among there you. There we go. Yeah, yeah, but he shall minister unto him and shall pray for him unto the Father in my name. And if it so be that he repenteth and is baptized in my name, then shall receive him and shall minister unto him of my flesh and blood. Yeah. But if he repent not, he shall not be numbered among my people. They may not determine people, for behold, I know my sheep, and they are numbered. Nevertheless, you shall not cast him out from your synagogues. You know, it's interesting. It's like he hasn't taken upon himself my name. He doesn't get to be called of my people because he literally hasn't accepted that. But you should still try to get him to come. <laughs> Even if he if he doesn't want to be part, you should still try to get him to come. <laughs> right. So it, love that there, how Christ is is telling them that they need to be as inclusive as possible, um, not even just as possible, I guess, isn't even the qualification. Just just continuously seek to include others in this experience because it may take them a long time to get it, but one day it might click, and you do not know what that day will be when all of a sudden that experience will become real for them and and their whole life will change. Yeah. Now, going back even to verse 25, and ye see that I have commanded that none of you should go away, but rather I've commanded that you should come unto me, that you might feel and see, even so shall ye do unto the world. And whosoever breaketh this commandment suffereth himself to be led into temptation. Yes, wow. I marked that one dark. You know, <laughs> I... I <laughs> <Me too>. um, <laughs> I don't. I don't necessarily want to keep bringing it up again, but this is this is not the same Christ that we read about in chapter nine. If you ask me, there's something here. There's something there. Yeah, I've been going back over that. We we've got to collaborate and write write something about that, <laughs> or or just do something separate about that that's more in depth. Because I've gotten more feedback on that uh, that particular podcast on on uh, 8 through 11 than any other any other ones. We've, we've, we've received quite a bit of, uh, and it's all been positive, which has been absolutely fantastic. In, in this 25, you know, in a world right now, and, and, and I hate to say that it, in a world that has never been this bad, because me personally, I've never seen things quite so good. Right. You know, right now in the world, we have actually less violent, murderous deaths than we've ever had before. We have more people who are not, not starving than per capita than we've ever had before. There's just so many good things that are going on in the earth right now. And that it, it, we could spend a whole episode or more just going through and listing all of the great grand things that are going on. But we live in a world that fixates and, and target fixates on all of the bad things, all the things that are tearing us apart. And we want to we want to kick these people out over here we wanted to kick these people out of office over there all of our we're afraid of other people's ideologies because other other people's ideologies now this comes from me as a as you know i it's no secret for anyone who knows me to to be in this realm of what people call a political libertarian and i don't really take upon myself the libertarian moniker anymore but that whole concept of just leave me alone and I'll leave you alone kind of thing. <laughs> I, I, I get people who are frustrated and just kind of want to be left alone from having just the world coming and encroaching on them all the time. And I get the feeling of wanting to build up a wall here and build up a barrier there 
and to and to just kind of keep people out of your life and out of your way and out of your society and out of your culture and out of your way of being and and out of all the things that you think are good and right and 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 just you want to keep it good right and that really sometimes entails just getting rid of the wrong people if we get the wrong people out of office or we can get the wrong people out of our country if we can get the let the right people in or if you know, the right people are the ones who come in the way they say we, we say they want to come in. And, and there's just so much hurt and pain in the world on so many sides. And yet, as I read Christ's words here, and see to it that I have not commanded you that you should go away, but rather I've commanded that you should come, that you might feel and see, even so you do unto the world. You know, it, I know there's an argument here that's saying, well, you know, Christ is talking about inviting people into the church and coming into the church and don't, don't, don't turn anybody away from the church. But he's talking about going out into the world as well, and not just into the world that's, that's in juxtaposition with the church as, as like an institution, like bringing people into the institutional church. Yeah, not the world as an abstract, but the world as a, a reality. Like, Yeah. See, Christ is not here talking about, okay, here's your church self, and we're just going to talk about your church self right now, and then let's go talk about your world self and your political secular self, right? That is so far beyond this conversation. Christ is talking to these people as whole and complete beings, and he's talking with them saying, listen, you have become and you are now living as Christ. You've entered into this conversation of what it means to take upon yourself the name of Christ. Now, that doesn't have anything to do with the church. That doesn't have anything to do with just secular government. It's just a way of being all the time in everything. That in everything, we bring people together. We don't cast anyone out. We bring them all together, not just into church, but into our lives. And, and, we, and, we, and we just bring that in to the center there. Now, I know there's a lot of other discussions that we can have, and I have a lot of friends who may even be listening to this who I know are, who have gained a lot of mental health and have gained a lot of strength in their life by boundaries. And I, and I know this kind of sounds like an anti-boundary discussion. That's not what I'm talking about. But in this, there is very much an ability of sending up a healthy bound, boundaries and living in a life of exclusion, right? There's, right. A, there's a world of difference there. And in this, Christ is, Christ is even drawing out and saying, hey, listen, if there are some, just like you said, Ben, if there are some among you who don't take upon themselves the name of Christ and they haven't embarked on this path, that's fine. Now, and there's a place for them here, and and it's still here with you. And so there seems to be good, healthy boundaries here, while also almost living without boundaries. It's this weird paradox where there is, but there isn't, and and we can still all bring everybody in without having to have a spirit of our heart of exclusion. It's it's just it's a beautiful. Beautiful way that Christ has been able to talk about this, where it's purely edifying. It's just absolutely amazing. You know, talking about that reminded me that the covenant that Alma talks about in chapter 18, uh, Mosiah 18 of baptism, where we mourn with those that mourn and comfort those that stand in need of comfort. That covenant doesn't say we mourn with those that mourn who have also made the covenant to mourn. And we comfort those that stand in need of comfort who have also made the covenant to comfort. It doesn't say that. It doesn't say that we only do those things with other people that have made the covenant as well. Yeah. It means we, it says you do it unto the world. 
and he's talking both in a literal and abstract sense. The world meaning people who have not accepted or have rejected me, you still treat them the same way. You still invite them. You still want them to come and experience. Yeah, there you go. That's that. That's you said it much better than I. That's what. That's what I took a long time to try to say. You, you said it very well in a very a lot fewer words. <laughs> so, um, uh, I, I have a question mark in the margin on a couple of things. One in, in chapter nineteen, but I have a question mark. I thought about this for a little bit. And I, I couldn't quite get anywhere with it, and so if you don't have any thoughts on it, I'll have to sit with it for a little while longer. But it comes down to verse thirty-five. And this is uh, Christ saying again that he has to go into the Father. He says, And now I go unto the Father, because it is expedient that I should go unto the Father for your sakes. And I don't really know what he means. The only thought that came to me when I was reading there, too, because I I had a mental question mark there, too. The only thing that really came to me or was uh, present when I was reading that this time through was just the thought that Christ is not our advocate to the Father, He's our advocate with the Father. You know, we have this idea set up in our head, and, you know, it's in no thanks to, you know, things like chapter 9 and 10, where we have this concept of a God who is coming after us with vengeance if we don't do what they say. A God that we need protection from. A God that on one side is loving and accepting and caring and provides a way, but on the other side is hellish and is going to come out and and completely destroy us literally physically and then spiritually as we're we're completely damned because of our choices right and so this concept of having an advocate with the father brings the father into this advocacy where we're not at war with one while the other pleads our case we are there in peace with both of them as they are helping us to understand. And and that's what, you know, coming over here unworthily, when it talks about the unworthiness over here in verses 28 and 29, when Christ commands that, uh, see to it that nobody partakes of the sacrament unworthily. And, mm-hmm. and yeah, so and this, we were this concept. Yeah, discussion about that. <laughs> I know that, you know, worthiness, you know, is this really crazy word. And, you know, we need to have... I know we should probably just reserve a, a whole section, a whole hour just to talk about this one topic. Aren't you and Riley going to do something on that? Yeah, we're, we're planning on doing something. I realize if we're going to tackle that, there needs to be a lot more foundation that we have to get <laughs> <laughs> made up for it. But in this, I look at unworthiness as a far more epistemic quality than a metaphysical one. Where, you know, we tend to think of like unworthiness as a metaphysical or as like, as a literal uh, identity or marker of ourselves. Whereas this unworthiness, I I look at far, far, far more, if not exclusively as an epistemic condition of a person who is not yet in in a place where they have they can mentally understand literally they're in this place, the state of mind where Jesus is saying, listen, I see to it that you can't still understand everything that I'm here to tell you. Yeah. It's like, that's the kind of unworthy. So unworthy has so much baggage to it. And quite frankly, I would be glad if we could just scrap that word out from our entire lexicon and our religious worship. But you know, here it is. Jesus is, you know, transliterated as though that he said this. So we have to deal with this word. And so this word for me is more epistemic, dealing with the condition of the person who's not 
who doesn't feel right with God yet. Not because of God, but because of who and what they are. And so when I see this whole, you know, Jesus keeps on saying he's going to the Father, he's going to the Father for your sakes, I look at this as that advocacy, because now he's he's bringing them into one with him with all of this blessedness talk. He's bringing the people into one. And this is almost like the intercessory prayer where, you know, bless them, Father, make them one with me as I am one with you. And so now there's like this connection between the people to, to the Father through Christ as he is our advocate with the Father in bringing us all into the unity of what it means to be blessed was the idea that I had for there. Yeah, and, and that's a good way to view it. As you were talking, I did think of, of another way that, that this might uh, make sense, that Christ is going to the Father for our sake. He, he has just taught these people a celestial law. And now he's shown them what it is to live celestially. And when he says, I'm going to the Father for your sake, it's, um, I'm going to qualify this, but I'm going to say, say it first. It's almost like he's sort of stepping back and letting them then live that, right? And I don't mean stepping back in the sense that he's leaving them. Because actually, we find out in the next chapter that they're doing all these things. And then all of a sudden, Jesus is there right? Like he never left. It was just kind of their perception. But that he's he's stepping back in a, um, in a sort of metaphorical way to no longer is he just doing it to show them, but he wants them to do it, right? And so, okay, now you've seen what I've done. Now I want you to do it. So I'm going to go to the Father for your sake so that you can do it. And so I, I kind of see it in in that sense, right? That I'm I'm not going to be the one just doing it now. I want you to. I I like uh, how. Well, I mean, we'll get here to chapter nineteen, but like with the worthiness thing, yeah, I think this goes a little bit back to the perception, because you know, I think in LDS culture, the way that we've taken this in terms of culture and policy uh, with the worthiness of the sacrament is that it's the bishop's responsibility if a person, uh, if he knows that a person has committed a certain sin or something, that they don't take the sacrament for a certain period of time while they repent, right? That's sort of how we've um, made it policy and culturalized it. But uh, there's definitely something different going on here in the heart of the person than what we have written in policy and what it is in terms of uh, not suffering someone to partake of it unworthily is not, not letting, if you know someone is, is hurting and needs repentance, you don't just let them go on and, and do the actions. You, you go to them and you try to help them. You try to help them be reconciled to God in a loving way. So you don't let them keep thinking that they are unworthy, or you don't let them keep thinking that God is condemning them. You go to them and you show them the love of God and you help them understand the need for repentance and the changing their perception and seeing their worthiness so that when they take the sacrament, it's not doing it in a in a way or out of a perception of a judgmental God, it's partaking the sacrament in a way of viewing God as loving, which is the whole purpose of the sacrament. 
So if they're taking it, feeling like they're being judged and condemned because of it, then that, then that experience that they're supposed to be remembering and commemorating is really more hellish and damnation, right? Because all they're doing is commemorating their shame. All they're doing is commemorating their sin. But if they can instead view it in a different way, as this is a token of a commemoration of the love of God that I've experienced, then it's the total opposite of that, right? So I see this more as an imperative to us, and particularly those who have stewardship, you know, priesthood keys or whatever, to, to go and find those sheep and, and help them understand, not that he stops them from taking the sacrament, but that he stops them from taking it unworthily. And the way you stop them from taking it unworthily is not by stopping them from taking it. It's by helping them repent, helping them change their perception as quickly as, as they are willing to. So I, I, you know, I stumbled in that a little bit, but I hope I got my point across. Yeah, I love that. That, that, that's, that's fantastic stuff. You know, that's, that's really where you, you said it really well. That's, that's kind of where I'm going with it as well. And, and I think that really meshes well with how you brought in Jesus's ability to give them the ability to now enact this themselves and to go about and to do this themselves mixed with this idea of them being in a state of blessedness. Because now, you know, because when Jesus says for them to pray for that which is right, it's not just to pray for anything, it's pray for that which is right, believing that you will receive. It's the same kind of source of desire that once you've reached this state of blessedness and you're now in this blessedness, now you go do it on your own. And so now as as we move into chapter 19, and and I love in verses 2 and 3 about how that whole night after Jesus left, everybody went to their home, but it's like nobody could really stay in their home. And all of a sudden, everybody's out, out just they're trying to get everybody. Mm-hmm. Now, everybody's voicing it abroad, running to and fro in one place or another. Because I, in my head, at least, I think growing up as a kid, I had this idea that everybody who was anybody was already there. Yeah. And with this, now, you know, it's like, obviously, no, there's a lot of people who weren't there, haven't even heard about what was going on the day before, or they just haven't even heard anything, right? And so in this particular way, now we have the 12 and they're called, we have them being baptized. Now they start to enact the sacrament themselves, right? Yeah. And it's in that moment that they invite Christ back. Uh-huh. It's like now now in the commemoration, now they're experiencing it all over again. And yeah, See, and, and that worthiness, they're proactive. It's the proactiveness of them going out on their own, of doing it, like you said, where now they're bringing Christ back into the commemoration to where it's it's no longer a remembrance of what has happened. It's this almost like a tautology of just, I'm experiencing it to be able to commemorate it, to be able to experience it, to commemorate it. And so it's this, this cyclical pattern that we're always in a commemoration, but we're also also in the very experience of it, which is which is absolutely beautiful to me. Yeah, I love the how the end of eighteen and him telling them, you know, don't don't let anyone go away. Everyone should become come unto me. Flows into the chapter nineteen where they spend 
all the night going out and telling people to come, you know, like they, they literally <laughs> immediately enact this, this principle that he just taught them because their hearts are, are there and they've experienced it and they, they just naturally want to, to do it. And I'm just imagining this experience, right? Having hearing that Christ is in a certain place and we should go visit him. And it says, uh, an exceedingly great number did labor exceedingly all that night that they might be on the morrow in the place where Jesus should show himself unto the multitude. You know, what would you, you know, what, what marathons would you run? What, uh, what money would you spend or resources would you expend to, to get to that place as soon as possible so that you could, could be there and experience that? I don't know, but probably means I need to get in shape. If this is going to happen. <laughs> <laughs> there seems to be a lot of running going on. I, <laughs> I should prepare. <laughs> so um, I have a, a, a little thing with verse four, which barely deserves mentioning, except for the fact that, you know, this is probably something brought up by, by uh, Book of Mormon critics. Um, Nephi's brother, um, his name is apparently, not apparently, it says here that Nephi's brother's name was Timothy. Now, um, Timothy is actually a Greek name. And so um, the Nephites would not have had a Greek name, Timothy. Um, so I don't know how to respond to that, but I thought I'd just point it out that uh, this is probably something like a critic would bring up. Well, pff, obviously the Book of Mormon doesn't make any sense because the Nephites wouldn't have known any Greek whatsoever. So why would Nephi's brother be named Timothy? So I thought that was just funny. Um, <laughs> <laughs> right. Almost like why is Jesus in the, isn't Jesus Greek as well? Yeah. Jesus yeah. is the Greek of, of, of Yeshua. Sure. Yeah. So I don't, I don't know what the, the uh, Nephite uh, language is of, of Timothy, but that's, that's kind of funny. So you were talking about how the the twelve then are teaching the people, and just like you were saying in verse eight, when they administered those same words which Jesus had spoken, nothing varying from the words which Jesus had spoken, behold, they knelt again and prayed to the Father in the name of Jesus. So basically, the twelve just get out there in all the different multitudes and they give the sermon on the mount or the sermon at the temple all over again to the people. Now, Jesus had just in the previous chapters commanded them when they were going back to their families to ponder on the things that he had taught them and to prepare themselves. And then the 12 get out there and they teach them the same things. So you're, they're hearing the same words over again. And I'm I'm sure a lot of things landed that second time that, that didn't land the first time, right? So that that makes sense how that would be. And then that prepared them again for the second experience that they're going to have with Christ. Yeah, when Christ comes again, it's just, it's powerful. And I, I, I think it's really neat in these chapters, the interplay between Christ coming down and being with them and then going off and praying to the Father and and just the sequence that he follows. And I, I don't really have anything more to talk about it other than just what as I was reading through it this time, how he goes and how he moves and when he does and when he kneels to pray and when he tells others to kneel to pray and when he speaks and when he and when he just that whole process. And I, it's really stood out more just going through it right now with you, how 
easily this all flows from one moment to the next in, in a very organic way uh-huh. that's not like okay well you know this 15 minutes is over principle taught moving on to the next principle yeah priesthood meeting is done let's go and let's do relief society meeting now <laughs> right let's do relief society meeting all right break it's ice cream uh ice cream devotional now let's you know <laughs> That's not, that's not what's going on here. We had bread and wine yesterday for the sacrament. Today we're going to do. <laughs> yeah, I mean, there's there's none of that. And the focus here is to have the spirit. It's to have that Holy Ghost come down upon them. And and they get it in verse 13. And it came to pass that when they were all baptized, this is, this is when uh, the apostles were, or I'm sorry, the disciples here um, under Nephi, and they were all being baptized. They were baptized and had come up out of the water. The Holy Ghost did fall upon them, and they were filled with the Holy Ghost and with fire. And behold, they were encircled about as if by fire, and it came down from heaven. And the multitude did witness it and did bear record. Now, I'm going to stop here real fast on this. Is I've uh, I've now read these chapters like three times now to talk about this right now. And I keep on finding places where Mormons like, and they did bear record because on the side of every time that I've had it, I've put uh, this um, this little tag on the side of uh, in the margin where I say the historian's citation. And as I've read through this story before, I've gla- I've just glo- you know glossed over these. It's like, oh yeah, they bear they bore record of it. Everyone's like, yep. Did everybody see it? Yep, I saw it. All right, vote taken. Everybody saw it, and they move on. Right? No, this is actually Mormon is a historian. He's poring over records. And there has to be hundreds of these. Yeah. I mean, we know there's thousands of the people here and all of the records that he's finding from this person and from that person and from that source and this source. And he's realizing that they're all saying the same thing. And so when he says that the people did bear record of it, that means that he's got multiple original account sources that he's pulling from. And this is his, this is like the historian's citation. He's saying, this is my citation of and the people did bear record of it. I, ha- in other words, I have the record. This is I'm I'm just giving you the synopsis. Yeah, synopsis. yeah, it's the yeah. abridgment. I've I've got the uh, I've yeah, got the abstract. original the manuscript. Yeah, for me, this going this time through is a lot more powerful. Yeah, and 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 we were, when we were talking about this before, you know, I mentioned I, I, I kind of wish Mormon had at least included just the text of one of the experiences of the people, right? You know, just like, and here's an example. And, you know, we got a chapter that was one person's firsthand account. I think that would have been really, really cool. But we don't have that. (laughs) (laughs) Maybe someone who was healed. I would have have loved to. It's in the sealed portion. (laughs) That's what that whole thing is. Just It's it's all the original source documents. Maybe it is. Maybe it is. (laughs) I would, I would, would love it. I'd dig that. <laughs> so, um, yeah, I, we have this this example of how Christ prays to the Father. It's very reminiscent of the uh, intercessory prayer in John, you know, that we may be one. So this is his example that he gives to the people of uh, how they how they pray and how they come to the Father and and communicate. You know, we have this this very seemingly odd but but for them it was just so natural and and felt right that they says in verse 18 this is talking about the disciples they did pray unto jesus calling him their lord and their god and jesus doesn't correct them and say oh no pray to the father right but he just goes off and and bows down and and prays to the father because it just everything that they're doing is is all 
in their efforts to be one with him and with the Father. And so, anyway, I just thought it was sort of interesting. We have this example in the scriptures of people praying to Jesus, whereas, like, culturally in the church, we're told, pray to the Father, pray to the Father, right? (laughs) Yeah. I love the prayer that Christ offers. And it says, And it came to pass that when they had all knelt down upon the earth and commanded his disciples that they should pray, and and behold, they began to pray. And they did pray unto Jesus, calling him their Lord and their God, which is just what you said. And it came to pass that Jesus departed out of their midst uh, of them and went a little way off from them and bowed himself to the earth and said, Father, I thank thee that thou hast given the Holy Ghost unto these whom I have chosen. And it is because of their belief in me that I have chosen them out of the world. Father, I pray thee that thou wilt give the Holy Ghost unto all them who shall believe in their words. Father, thou hast given them the Holy Ghost because they have believed in me. And thou seest that they believe in me, because thou hearest them, and they pray unto me, and they pray unto me because I am with them. And now, Father, I pray unto thee for them, and also for those who shall believe on their words, that when they believe in me, that I may be in them as thou art, Father, art in me, that we may be one. And it came to pass that when Jesus had thus prayed unto the Father, he came unto his disciples, and behold, they did still continue to pray without ceasing. And to pray unto him, and they did not multiply many words, for it was given unto them what they should pray, and they were filled with desire. Man, what what just what an absolute an absolute joyous occasion to be in that moment to just be able to pray and to come into that moment of blessedness where they are so in one with God and and the Son at that same moment that it's just it's given to them the words that they are to utter. And they don't even have to mince words. It's just it flows freely. Yeah, they're able to express themselves without being redundant or cliche or overusing the same types of phrases. It just, all of their thoughts and feelings are able to just flow in a very natural and open and humble way. That's where we should try to get in our prayers, right? that we are filled with desire when we pray such that all of our words are truly sincere and really what we feel and not just a multiplication of words, not just saying the same thing over or um, saying things like, Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for this day, right? That, that everybody starts every prayer with. <laughs> Right, <laughs> but but the but every single prayer, every single word means something and is sincere. You know, when Jesus had come to the people in verse twenty-five, I love this fact. I love this here where it says, "And it came to pass that Jesus blessed them as they did pray unto him, and his countenance did smile upon them, and the light of his countenance did shine upon them, and behold, they were as white as the countenance and also the garments of Jesus." I love that description there to smile upon them, and the light of his countenance did shine upon them. And at this point, Jesus saith unto them, pray on, nevertheless, they did not even cease to pray. <laughs> so Jesus is like, pray on. And they're like, <laughs> we never stopped, right? And he turned again from them and went a little way off and bowed himself to the earth. So now Jesus is praying a second time to the Father. Father, I thank thee that thou hast purified those whom I have chosen because of their faith. And I pray for them and also for them who shall believe on their words 
that they may be purified in me through faith in their words, even as they are purified in me. Father, I pray not for the world, but for those whom thou hast given me out of the world, because of their faith, that they may be purified in me, that I may be in them as thou, Father, art in me, that we may be one, and that I may be glorified in them. And at this point, we go back, and Jesus had spoken these words. He came to his disciples, and they did pray steadfastly. They still weren't stopping to pray. And they did pray without ceasing unto him, and he did smile upon them again. Ah, I love that. I, I just I love that imagery of, of just the joy and the smile and the expression of, of just contentedness to be there with them. You know, it says again in verse 31 that he goes off again a third time. And tongue cannot speak the words which he prayed, neither can be written by man the words which he prayed. And the multitude did hear and bear record, and their hearts were open, and they did understand in their hearts the words which he prayed. Nevertheless, so great and marvelous were the words which he prayed, that they cannot be written, neither can they be uttered by man. And here we close with, again, with where we began, where so great faith where Jesus turns to them and he says, So great faith that I have never seen among all the Jews, wherefore I could not show unto them so great miracles because of their unbelief. Verily I say unto you, There are none of them which have seen so great things as ye have seen, neither have they heard so great things as ye have heard. You know, it's it's just fascinating what this uh, concept, you know, maybe we should uh, in the future open up some discussions about uh, belief and about what belief is. Because I, for me, in my, in my own transition, I, I have less and less desire to sit on truth claims and to try to advance certain truth claims so much as to invite and to simply experience and to sit with God and to have those moments when when I can be there with God. And my experience with, with God strengthens my confidence and in, empowers the faith within, within my own discipleship where I say I believe and that my belief is strengthened. But just to say belief in the way that we just, that I, that I, that I have a very tightly held opinion or I have a very tightly held or a very firmly held um, thought that I think is true. I, belief for me goes so much deeper than that. And, and so, I, yeah, I think there's a lot, a lot of, uh, a lot of discussion that we can have there because the experience of these people in having true belief, I just don't see that really melding with a lot of the times how we actually talk about belief in kind of in, in standard LDS culture. I think there has to be something far deeper to it than what we've actually uh, probably culturally experienced or, or talk about a lot. Well, I think uh, just from a translation perspective here, the word unbelief may not be the exact opposite of belief, right? Unbelief here seems to be the opposite of faith, even though uh, linguistically, you know, we don't have, it's not, not very tight and, and not very tidy <laughs> because yeah, like you were saying, belief seems to uh, denote like a particular, a specific truth claim or not even just a truth claim, but like a belief in a particular stated truth or principle whereas faith is more of a a broader uh phenomenological thing where we we operate based on a certain premise that isn't necessarily statable 
in a phrase, but uh, has more to do with our experience and and desires and mode of being than it does uh, like a specific truth claim uh, phrase. So like you were saying, um, our faith is in, in Jesus Christ, and that denotes a whole experience, not just a specific belief that you can state within a sentence or two. Uh, so anyway, going back to the word where it says because of their unbelief, um, I think it has to do with lack of faith, we might say, rather than their rejection of a specific belief. Yeah, I like that a lot. I like that a lot. But I, yeah, this 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 ties it up very well um, with these chapters and, um, you know, definitely raises the question for me. It's what is what's keeping me back from having these types of experiences at all or more often. And I I can't speak to every single one of these experiences, but some of these things that are described here, you know, especially like the ones where say your know, words can't describe it. I, I have experienced in my life and, and I have to ask myself, you know, what is preventing me or what has kept me back from experiencing that either on a regular basis or, or all the time um, as the, the sacrament prayer seems to indicate is, is possible. You know, why, why is my commemoration of these things not helping it stick more to me? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, man, you know, I've talked about it quite a bit over the last several years where my experience with God has been that if I have a true prayer of Lord, what lack I yet? I just really have to be quiet for just a few seconds before <laughs> Google search results two million three hundred sixty-seven thousand. <laughs> yes, that experience. Yeah, it's 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 like a divine Google search, and God's like, "Well, you asked for it. Here, here are your search results, and a few paid for paid advertisements, right?" Yeah, and uh, that the pop up at the top. And so <laughs> that's true. <laughs> yeah, so there's a lot of that going on, and. You know, I, I think sometimes it can be overwhelming when we start to become self-critical and never anywhere did Christ at all become critical of anyone. Right. You know, as he's looking there at, at the faith and even, even when he's, he's talking about how he, he groans because of the lack of faith, mm-hmm. you know, this is not, a, this is not criticism because the, I mean, the very first thing he's doing here is he's now bringing them forward into these experiences and he knows exactly what to do to be able to bring them into into a place where they can't understand his words. And so when we come to the Lord and we're like, "Hey, what lack I yet?" You know, sometimes it's big. Sometimes I I I still have things where, you know, I've been working on, you know, I'm a work in progress and man, I've got so many things I've been working on for years. Years. And I'll come to the Lord and he's like, well, you got this. I'm like, yeah, I still have that, don't I? He's like, yeah, you do. And I'm like, all right, well, I get, you know, and, and so, and so it's just, it's not to get bogged down in life, but to the fact that there is even a conversation and I know it's the Lord because when those things come up into my mind, there's always this love that's there. It's not shame. It's not. Yeah. 
No. And, and in fact, the moment, and, and I have had experiences where I've prayed and I do have moments of shame. Mm-hmm. And I've really got to check those feelings. I've really got to check those moments and those experiences and kind of tell those exper- those feelings to go back to hell where they came from. Because that kind of accusing voice that shames and belittles and ridicules and, and makes you feel less than you are, when the Lord exposes the, the things that we need to work on next, and he brings those to the forefront, that's where the joy and the glory are. And, and so it's, that's not to say that <laughs> they're always really easy. As I said, there's some things about my own life I've been working on for a really long time. And, you know, you just keep on chipping away it's at like, it and eh, working at it. I don't it. like that first search result. Let's go to the second one. <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> <laughs> and, and I found that the Lord really, it's, I don't want to say he doesn't care, but it's not in his thing of being like, you really should do it today. You know, like there's okay. no, you should this. That's fine. We can go to the second one. But every time you search this, that's going to be the first result. <laughs> yes, that's it. <laughs> that's my experience. So, so it's such a glorious, such a glorious process. And, and I can say, you know, especially one of the, this last year has been, you know, for a lot of us, uh, not, you know, just, not just with COVID, but with a lot of other things for me personally has been uh, just a very up and down year. Mm-hmm. And, you know, with uh, changing and repenting of, in life and see, and repenting and seeing God differently, right? And seeing myself differently. Some people call it deconstruction. Some people just call it adult development. Some people call it faith. Uh, what was it? Uh, stages of faith. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I don't know. I don't want to put it into a box. I just am experiencing things. And and in that way, I've I've come to find a loving God who even in all of my pain just sits there with me next to me and suffers with me and allows me to be able to do whatever I need to do in that relationship with him. And then at the end of it, I just kind of, I, it's like, I look over at him and I'm like, this is rough. And his response is not just a, a detached, yeah, it is. But it's this moment when I know he went through it with me. You know, that whole he suffered with me in that moment. So every every moment where I'm like, that was rough. He's like, yeah, that was really rough. And just to know that there's someone there you know, is, is really powerful. And so as I see Christ here in these chapters... And I see him just, and it's not even like he's pa- being patient with them. He's just so there present with them in where they're at and just being with them to the next step. And it just flows. And that's such an amazing thing. All right, Ben. Well, until next time, we're going to be getting into some uh, into some uh, really great chapters. I mean, they're all really great chapters. I, I don't know if I can really even say that anymore about 35. <laughs> I mean, they're all great chapters. Hey, next week, we're going to have some great chapters. So... <laughs> Yeah, so this one that we just recorded, though, is technically good for two weeks, right? Because then we have general conference. And so this, there, there's sort of a break in the come follow me. Um, so I don't know if you want to to wait to record the other one or. I don't know. Let's, fi- let's figure it out. Okay. Let's figure it out. And then, when I, and then we can uh, see where we are. I don't know. I, I just, 
I've come to like this so much. And I know you taught seminary for a bunch of years, and I taught seminary for a bunch of years. And after teaching seminary for four years full time and uh, being being gone for, you know, I was a sub for almost two years before that. This is just this is just really good for my soul. I yeah. love. I just get to love just to sit down and talk. And yeah, it's just it's good stuff. So. Yeah, if, uh, thanks everybody for sticking around, for listening, and if there's something here that you've enjoyed, you think somebody else will uh, enjoy as well, share it. Um, give us feedback. You can get on Latter-day Peace Studies, the Facebook page, and check us out and leave comments and feedback and send us messages. We're getting a lot of messages from a couple of the episodes that we've done, and we love to respond. So yeah, reach out to us. See what uh, Tell us what your thoughts are, so what you're feeling. If you have experiences in these ways too. Um, yeah, so that's, that's really the best part about doing this. So, but until next time, I'm Shiloh Logan. And I'm Ben Peterson. Thanks, everybody, for listening. <laughs>